And I've cried four separate times today. Hi, I'm Chantel, and the Eiffel Tower is my favorite phallic art piece. Just so you know, this meeting is being recorded. I love it. <laughs> okay. Welcome back to another episode of Drunk Art History Pitches. Today we are going to be discussing crying. So I think my my intro is actually it was actually really spot on. I have I have cried over four times today. <laughs> One of them was onion induced. I will say that. It happens. Sure, it was Emma. We'll believe you. It's okay. So this topic came as an inspiration of a book that James Elkins wrote, um, which I believe, oh my God, what is the title? Chantel, do you have the title off the top of your head? I do have the title. It is called Pictures and Tears. Pictures and Tears. Thank you so much. So at the end of last week's episode, <laughs> we were talking about potential topics and one of them was crying, which I think is something that we all have been doing Quite an abnormal, no, actually, I take that back, quite a, quite a healthy amount during this quarantine. And so what better way and what better thing to focus on than a human bodily reaction reflected in artwork. And so today we are going to be discussing artworks that have made us cry, that have people crying in them, and we are going to rate them by level of fucked upness. That's a word. It is a word. Totally. All right. So to kick us off, we are going to look at none other than Picasso's Weeping Woman. Hmm. That's your level three, huh? That's my level three. Okay. Level three. I think it's my level three. So so for the listeners, we're going three, two, one, three as in, you know, the, the kind of like gentler approach to fucked up in this and then all the way to one where it's like oh my fuck that's where we are like it yeah so I think the reason that I like instinctively chose weeping woman by Picasso was that I think quite often women are represented crying in artwork and I don't know I th- I, I could go into a spiral of normative gender roles and shit like that of why only women are represented in the history of hysteria and uh, all that fun stuff but I think what I find really comforting and strangely enough I find this painting really comforting mostly because the chaotic colors that are chosen for this painting are very much I don't know when you have like a huge sob fest it feels like you are on spinning carousel that just does not get off and there are colors and information and all of this shit that you were spiraling about and it I, I mean these colors are not far off you know I I really love okay so I'm I'm surprised by your ranking it at three which is like minimal fuck upness because it is as so many of Picasso's works are so chaotic and like I think that for a lot of people when you look at Picasso's work there are very few of his works where you feel calm Mm -hmm. so I it's really interesting to talk to you about how you feel calm looking at this because I think a lot of people and a lot of you know humans in general they find calm in controlling chaos and Picasso is so much about the chaos but I think his work is really appropriate and at its best when it is um, exploring heightened emotion. Mm. So, you know, the act of weeping and crying for whatever reason. Um, and the fact that, you know, tears are a bodily reaction that happen not just when we're sad, but they can happen when we're angry, when we're scared. Um mm-hmm. 
even. Yes, exactly. Um, when you're happy. And with Picasso's work, like, I would say that there's something in the woman's eyes that make me think that it's sadness more than anything else that is mm-hmm. causing her tears. But there isn't, like, a clear-cut way to read this of what it is actually that is causing her to weep. We don't know what what happened right before and what's going to happen right after. It's it's this, I, I want to touch upon what you brought up in terms of chaos and like finding the control in that. And I think, I feel like this painting is contained chaos, which I think is something almost like paradoxical. Well, and it's weird. I think for most Cubist painters, that's what their work is, a sort of contained chaos. Yeah. And I also, um, you know, with it being Cubist, the very abrupt contour lines, the very jagged edges, you know, tears flow in a very, <laughs> they flow in a liquidy way. What the f- <laughs> And so to have it be so angular and so, um, yeah, I don't know, just to have it be so uh, bold and angular and aggressive I don't know I I think it's just it's so not how I would interpret sadness or or weeping really but I think I don't know as as I mentioned I have cried multiple times today and there was one cry that I had that was very jagged angular spiraling and I think I think that's why I chose it as my my level three god it's because of its relatability yeah you know Picasso so relatable so relatable (laughs) um you know it's funny speaking of Picasso I almost chose Guernica for this because I feel like it's one of those pieces where if I ever see it in person I'm just going to totally lose my shit because it's so evocative of many many different kinds of emotion but I wanted to be a little bit more literal with our, you know, whole crying and art thing where I kind of wanted it there as a visual in front of me in the pieces I was choosing. Although we did talk about, before we started officially discussing things on the podcast, you know, is this painting like symbolizing fucked upness? Is it about how fucked up it makes you feel. Um, And I think that with so much art, it could go either way, honestly, forever and always. I think that's kind of the magic of it. I mean, you and I are like visual thinking strategied out of how to look at an art, how to look at an art. Um, This is drunk art history, people. Drunk art history. How to look at an art, everyone. Please <laughs> gather around. That there's so many different interpretations and associations that one can make, and the history of it doesn't necessarily have to dictate one's per- perception of a particular artwork. And, you know, I think Picasso is just such a household name that he can be so easily typecast it is oh you know he paints like a child so of course or like you know he started off painting so realistically and then descended to like quote unquote childlike works and I even though he is such a household name and it's not it's not to the point where it's the Mona Lisa for me I still I still really um have a soft spot for Picasso I I'm sure he would I mean I'm looking at my notes right now for, you know, the model of weeping woman. Dora Maar was Picasso's mistress from 1936 until 1944. And I'm like, you know, this fool probably had so, I, God, I remember there was some fact about Picasso that made me go, ugh, of course, when I was, uh, when I was doing undergrad at UCLA. And it was yeah. when, I think it was right after I learned that had a, oops, name drop, uh, had a, <laughs> Picasso seminar for the grad students. Maybe I'll just bleep it out. I don't know. <laughs> oh my God, for our listeners, Chantel has covered her face and is just, oh no, friends. 
I, friends of the pod, I broke her. I broke her like this woman. Okay. It's okay. Thank <laughs> you so much, Emma. Good job. Thanks. Um, and on that note, <laughs> on that note, I am going to switch it over to you. I want to see your level three. Okay. Well, I mean, the reason why I was laughing so hard, FYI, is because <laughs> just as I was about to say, oh, Picasso definitely fucks, like. For everyone who doesn't know, Picasso totally fucks. <laughs> yeah, he does. Yeah, he does. Yeah, um, okay. So... I think my level three is going to be, I think I'm going to go with Man Ray's Tears. I'm so pleased that you chose this. I, well, okay, so this photograph is just like visually so much of what I love to see. It has like, it's so stereotypically from its time period um, in the 1930s, there's the like sliver thin eyebrows shaved to within an inch of their life and like the doll-like lashes with the incredibly visible mascara. And then these like almost, I would say comic glass blobs that are near her eyes to represent tears. And I love it because to me, it's really just symbolizes how much of this is fake. Oh yeah. Which is why it's my number three. It's like the base level, almost, I would say like a representation of the adage of crocodile tears. Like there's some pathos in the model's eyes in the subject's eyes, but her eyebrows are fake her eyelashes are fake and her tears are very obviously fake and i could talk for hours and hours about Man Ray and about his work in the fashion industry and how oh my God, we have that, i think uh, God, we have spent hours and hours talking about Man Ray because I mean, I think, I don't want to speak for you as well, but I think he's our problematic favorite, for sure. Oh, 100%, yes. And what I love about this piece in particular, he's our problematic favorite because one of our actual favorites is Lee Miller, um, who was his intern with Benefits. Yeah, and then also kind of superseded him in some... Very much so, yeah, in terms of, like, just general skill in my opinion anyway have you heard of her as much as you have heard of man ray no is that bullshit yes she's got the photo i'm so sorry to interrupt you i want to like confirm this she's got the photo where it's a blown up condom with a little needle about to poke it right that's me she also has um pictures of women's breasts that are cut off and are on surgical tables because they were removed for women who had breast cancer mm-hmm. as kind of an fu for like okay well if so much art is going to spend time on women's breasts well here you go buddy at yeah. their most elemental level here's a pair of women's breasts mm-hmm. so you know lee miller she's just got that real like big dick energy and what I love about this piece is that it's rumored that he did this right around the time that they broke up, which I makes me look at this and think like, are you representing your own tears or are you like trying to project to the world and make yourself feel better that Lee Miller's tears were obviously crocodile tears that were just fake and that there wasn't any real feeling there. Were you actually sad, Man Ray? Like, I don't know, but it's so fun to think about. Right. And, you know, after reading his autobiography, it was such a, I felt like it was such a case study in the mind of 
a very narcissistic artist that had no self-awareness. And the, I, I can totally see this, you know, his intent being about Lee Miller and, and you know, all of that. And I, I can totally see that, you know, him making it not about himself, but of course it is about him. And he, God, every time he wrote about a woman, it was the most flippant mm. thing I've ever read. And it was also so, um, you know, he was very, he, he very much objectified every woman that he wrote about and saw them as either objects of love and inspiration or objects that were under his control and that he could just throw around or throw away. And I find it, and, and you and I have discussed this so much, it's, it's he photographs women in such a beautiful, incredible way that his flippancy for women that he writes about, I'm just like, bro, what the fuck are you thinking? Like, please tell me where this connects. You know, I have to imagine that a large part of it is because he did start out in fashion photography. And I think it's a thing where it's like an appreciation of the beauty of a thing while treating it as an object, always and forever. And I think for him, it extended from clothing to the bodies and women who were inhabiting those clothes. Like they're all just props and things to inspire and then cast off. Absolutely. I mean, even, you know, before the fashion photography, he was doing rayographs. So he was so in into physical objects as well. I mean, that's maybe a stretch, but, you know, working with objects and being able to control and manipulate and how he treated his models as such. Absolutely. The tears of misogyny, ladies and gentlemen. Ripe. Ready. Here. Are they real or not? I say no. I say no. We'll, we'll, we'll cast a poll for our listeners to see if uh, what, what they think. <laughs> All right, Emma, let's see your level two. All right, you got uh, it. Fuck up, Adness. You got it. So I'm not as familiar with this piece, but I, I think so, like, I'm so visually interested in the narrative that was happening in this. Because I feel like with, you know, with the first two choices that you and I have made, it's it's very much an, about the interpretation of the mm -hmm. And with this one, um, I'll, I'll, you know, get rid of the uh, suspense. So I chose... And I, and I apologize in advance to any listeners that shudder at my attempt to pronounce this. And, I, and as somebody that has her name mispronounced often, I, I, I very much, uh, I, say, I say I'm sorry in advance. So this is a woodblock print from, or it's a, it's a print from the woodblock artist, Sukioka Yoshitoshi. Um, and the title is Lady Gosichi from the series 100 Aspects of the Moon. So I, I read, I, I did not read the description before, you know, witnessing the piece. And every, like, I spent quite a long period of time looking at this really rich print. I kept finding more and more details. And it's so funny because when I was a student educator at the Hammer, one of the tricks that we got uh, visitors to really pause and look at a work of art is before we started each one of our talks in front of the work of art, we would ask visitors to spend 30 seconds looking at a work of art, which most visitors, I believe the statistics are, they, they look at a work of art for seven to 10 seconds. And so we would literally set a timer sometimes to really encourage participants to look at the full work of art look at it from far away, from up close, from multiple physical perspectives, as well as, you know, kind of challenging them to look at it from multiple, you know, cultural perspectives, perhaps. And so I found myself inherently doing this strategy while I was looking at this work because I was so interested with 
everything that was happening and, and how to understand the three characters within this single print and what was happening. So I'll get to why I chose this as level two, but I'd love to, I'd love to narrate kind of my experience when I first witnessed this piece and I, you know, I was looking at it and I saw these two figures, um, these two men who look like, you know, prominent men, I'm assuming because of their, their, uh, their hats um, and their outfits. And I saw them looking, they looked sad. And then I paused for a second, I'm like, okay, wait, I don't see any tears. What makes me think they look sad? And I, I can't really, you know, I can see that maybe their eyes are closed or they're downcast. Their physical position is, is very much kind of hunched over, is downward. And obviously that's kind of the association of like, okay, this person is sad or they're, you know, in a very serious or concentrated position. And, and the man on, well, as I'm looking at it, on my right is, uh, it looks like he's wiping away his tears. And I think of so many other paintings and photographs and everything like that. And usually when a character is crying in a narrative piece, it is, it is emphasized. There are literal presence of tears, you know, especially with the weeping woman being so dramatic and tears by Man Ray being, you know, the literal tears are placed on the, well, the fake literal tears are placed on the cheeks. But in this depiction, I found it so subtle that it just felt like I am peeking in on a very intimate moment. And, and you see these two characters very prominent, and then you see what looks like an older figure, perhaps a woman, playing a particular instrument. And there seems to be such a gentleness and such a sadness I want to say forlorn to this piece but then I'm looking at the colors and they're just so lovely they're so elegant I mean the print on the man who's crying the print on his clothes are just stunning and they're bright and they're bursting I just I find I find so much information in this print and so I was really drawn to it and I think I chose it as a level two because of its subtlety, because of its sort of the pause that it gave me, where I couldn't really understand fully what was happening, and it made me even more curious. And I, and I think what also motivated me to choose it as, as a level two was that, um, I don't know, I, I keep thinking of the different ways I've seen men portrayed crying in a lot of different artworks. And I think a lot about like, I think about like very religious, very dramatic, very, um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, like very prominent tears or just very like dramatic expressions. And this is one of such subtlety that it really, yeah, it just, it drove my curiosity. And so when I was able to read a little bit more, it says that two noblemen in court costumes are listening to the haunting sound of the koto, which is, a, which is an instrument, it's the zither, um, played by a nun. The music, but also the desolate state of the lady's dwelling moves them to tears. Gosechi literally means the five annual festivals celebrated at the imperial palace, but was also used to indicate the five beats of music. The lady's name therefore alludes to the music and ritual of a glorious bygone age when she was a young and beautiful court lady. So it really, I know, I, oh, fans, I'm seeing, fans and friends, friends. Chantel's reaction to that was one of just, how do I describe her face? Just like, I'm doing the face, like, like lips are peeled down, like eyebrows are, like, murk, murk. it's one of such empathy and it's one of such humanity. And so I just, God, I love this fucking piece. Just to know that it's, that it's a moment of beauty and pain and nostalgia and yearning for a time really, bro, it's right now. Like I'm fucking sad. I miss, I miss what was, but I also don't, I don't know. Anyway, yeah. that's my, that's my, that's my shit on this print. And I, I think it's gorgeous. Okay. Well now I'm really surprised that this is level two and not level one, honestly, after hearing about the poor woman and what the song's about, I'm like, oh, bitch, me too. Like the day's gone by. 
she cries as a 33-year-old. Like, but honestly, though, like, we can cry at any age at any time. This is the safe space. I don't know. There's also something that's, like, a woman singing about, like, oh, when I was younger, when I was more beautiful, that just hits extra deep because it's like I feel like when a guy weeps for like his glory days it's more about like what he was physically capable of doing Mm -hmm. you know the strength that he doesn't have quite as much or the vigor and for women it's just it usually is so much focus on the looks and just the aesthetic of youth and how that is like a currency that women frequently have to deal in because it's one of the few things that society tends to think is actually worth something about a woman. You know, do I find her attractive? And that's me riled up. That's the value system. Exactly. And, and this shit has been portrayed. This print was made in the like mid to late 1800s. So, here we are in 2020 and women are being tossed aside because of their age because they are not young and beautiful anymore so what are we worth to society then and to see two men weeping over a song like that two noblemen so two men of rank exactly and a woman of religions it's so interesting but you know i did want to say um i really love that you chose this piece because it's an example of emotion in non-Western art. I was just so caught by like how you were talking about how it felt a little antithetical because everybody's obviously sad, but the colors are so happy. And you know, there's so much life in the patterns that really made me think, I wonder how this color pattern in these prints play out in Japan. Like, is it, does it read differently if you've grown up with certain sets of colors that mean completely different things to you. That you associate with different emotions, absolutely. Exactly. But I think that, you know, the thing that can be really great about art sometimes is that, you know, even if colors have different meanings across cultures, when the art is good, there's still an emotionality that you can pick up on either way. And I really, like, it sounds so cheesy, but I really think that's beautiful that you can look at it and say, yeah, that's, that's sadness. You know, that's, and also a kind of yearning, like there's, there's something missing, basically. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, yeah, I, I find myself finding something new every time I look at it. Yeah, it's a level two for so many reasons. (laughs) I'm really scared to see your level three, honestly. Level, or level one. Or level level one. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Yeah, my level one, I think my level one is, I don't know, I feel fucked up in this can be such a spectrum, but anyway. That's so true. So (laughs) true. I'd love to see your level two. So. So my level two is a piece that is very weird and is perhaps by an artist that most of you will not be too familiar with, but you absolutely should be, which is J.C. Leindecker. And the piece itself is called The Babysitter. And what you see in the piece is a lot. (laughs) And quite a bit of it is in fact sad. But it is also really funny, and I find that so interesting. So, to me, the fuck up level is pretty high because it's like, the people, the subjects of the painting are obviously in distress, and yet the reaction of most viewers <laughs> is like hilarity, which is pretty fucked up. Right? <laughs> These... If you haven't seen this piece, please do yourself a favor and and look this up because 
like you see this and you're like oh shit okay we've all heard this baby we've all been the babysitter we have all also been this baby yes exactly so to kind of paint a picture here there is a rather youngish man who is very much in anguish he is holding a baby that is almost half the size of him. It's a very large and robust baby with plenty of little baby rolls. And this baby is just screaming its head off. And not only that, but it has decided to pull on this poor young man's hair, which causes him more pain as he is trying desperately to feed the baby to stop the pain and the yelling and crying. Can I pause um, for a second? Did you just yes. say baby rolls? Yeah, baby rolls. All right. Those are some baby rolls right there. <laughs> I, I mean, that's what they are. Like, look at his little chubs on his leg. Oh, he's chunk. Baby rolls. Baby rolls. Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. Um, but it's so funny. It, there's just something so comedic about it. And I think that part of it is like, I, I read once in a psychology class and I'm sorry to burden you with this knowledge, but someone needs to share my pain. No, please. Um, that the reason why most humans laugh is because they're uncomfortable with something. That mm. is almost always, if you look down deep enough, the reason why you're laughing at something. And this painting makes me laugh uncontrollably. <laughs> and I'm like, there is so much that's uncomfortable going on here for the baby, for the babysitter. And then just recognizing that like life itself can be so terribly uncomfortable. Like this poor baby has no language yet to speak to the pain and the exasperation that they have. And so all they can do is cry and scream and pull at people's hair and then you have this other young person who's just like, let me take care of you. But the baby doesn't understand that. He's just really upset over the prospect of life and not getting what he wants. As exactly. am I. <laughs> same, same. And it's so, I mean, it's so funny because um, while you were describing the baby's anguish, all that was going through my head is, what so what you know developmental period is this baby in are they one are they like conception to birth are they birthed to two years there's so many developmental periods and then what theory could this i have an exam on wednesday so i'm thinking about all of the child growth and development psychology notes going through my head and this is very clear this baby wants attention and it's gonna do whatever it needs to get that attention but of course it has not developed to the stage of language yet and sometimes I feel like I haven't either. Well, that's the other thing is like, I don't know who I sympathize or relate to more than get a guy who's just trying to make it all work or the baby who's like, I can't tell you what's actually wrong, but I'm really upset right now. The way that you just described that, I really, I don't know. What do you, how do you feel? I, I think I'm torn. I think I'm a little bit of both. I think I am too. I think we frequently are. That might be part of what's so uncomfortable to us that makes us laugh so much. It's like, you're never going to stop being both the caretaker and the baby. Like you get to a certain point where you're expected to be the caretaker and sometimes you really just feel like the baby. You really just feel like the baby. But also, I have to go off on J.C. Leindecker a little bit. Yeah, tell me. So people who haven't seen his work before are probably going to look at this and say, oh, he's like Norman Rockwell, mm. which is fair to a certain point. They were both illustrators for Courier and for the, morning, the Saturday Morning Post, Saturday Evening Post, Saturday Evening Post. But... Norman Rockwell, for some reason, ended up being the more popular household name between the two of them. But I really prefer Weindecker's work because it's 
it's Americana, but with more of an edge and more of a, even more of a playfulness to it in like a really sarcastic way, like in this piece. And the other thing I love is that he's such a, um, like a person that a lot of queer artists look up to and queer illustrators, especially because he did a lot of work for um, like men's catalogs and it was widely rumored that one of his favorite models was also his lover. And I kind of always like have to wonder if that was part of the reason why he didn't become as much of a household name as Norman Rockwell did. But amongst illustrators, his playfulness, I think is more respected because of that edge. And I'll never forget, I was working at um, the Hagen Museum in Stockton, California, which is phenomenal. They also have one of the largest collections of J.C. Decker pieces. So if you ever happen to be in the area, you should go check it out because it's part of their permanent collection now. What but at the time, it's amazing. This work is so amazing. But at the time, it was a special exhibit because the museum was trying to figure out where exactly they wanted this permanent collection to go. And so Stockton, California is in Northern California. So it's kind of close to the Bay Area um, and, you know, Tech Valley and all of those places. And what was so interesting to me and was just kind of like mind blowing as a young person working at this museum was that there were so many illustrators from Pixar who were coming to see this show because they loved his work so much. Oh, wow. And so I would see them come in and they'd be wearing these shirts that say like, I worked on Toy Story or Toy Story 2. And they'd have their sketchbooks and they would just come and like sketch it out and they totally loved his stuff. And I just, I remembered thinking that, you know, as an artist, especially an artist of this time or earlier, so somewhere around like the twenties and thirties and forties and earlier, it was really difficult to gauge success. And I think it's even now sometimes difficult to, for us to gauge as a society who we consider to be successful artistically. Mm -hmm. And I remembered thinking that Norman Rockwell might be the person that like everybody knew about, but JC Leindecker is the person that illustrators and people in his field knew about and respected. And, you know, wondering as an artist, which would they have preferred that there be more people who knows about their work or that fellow artists respected their work so much? I think that's such a great question or just, you know, thing to think about just because oftentimes a lot of artists' success will happen posthumously. So how, you know, how to understand your legacy before it even happens it's it's so interesting to see what factors go into it while you're you know still here amongst us humans and how you're perceived and and you know i i really appreciate the comparison to or, or your mentioning of the comparison to norman rockwell because i you know i think of norman rockwell rock blah, 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 norman rockwell and i thank you i think of like very false optimism, America, not so much propaganda, but just very much like this is positive and America is the best and we're in the American dream. And I, and I love the satirical and almost cynical nature of J.C. Decker just because I think that that provides such, uh, again, such intrigue and such uh, comedy and how often are you able to laugh at an artwork and really understand the satirical nature of it exactly mm. it'll leave you fucked up but like in a good way <laughs> the Maybe. subjects are crying tears of frustration and sadness but you will cry tears of joy look at that i will say that i very much felt like that baby earlier today when i was working on a puzzle i 
I did cry at one point, actually. It was a really hard puzzle. It was from Ikea, and it was meant for ages six and up. Dude, this shit was fucked up. She's getting teary right now, guys. It was so hard. It did not have appropriate edges. There was no way to gauge where the puzzle began, where it ended, where I began and where I ended. Nothing made sense. It was horrible. I mean, to be fair, that seems to be Ikea's, like, raison d'etre, like, making stuff that's unnecessarily complicated. Yeah, Claude. (laughs) I agree. All right, well... We're here, man. Should we do it? Level one alert. Wah, wah, wah. A fuck up to this. Listeners, fair and beautiful listeners, we are recording this episode September 13th, aka the 13th day of Halloween season. And I have chosen from Los Caprichos, Ya es hora, which means it is time from Francisco de Goya. So appropriately so, I chose this because it is spooky time. And it is very clear that these characters, well, I'll backtrack a little bit. So to continue the train of satirical artwork and the absolute absurdity that is Los Caprichos, I love Goya. I love the absolute, saturated, dramatic, satirical artwork that he makes. And I find that his style of sketching and the print work are just so haunting. And especially with this work in particular, when I did a little bit further research, it said that like, what was it? Witches and goblins cry out in daylight yes and i just i recently watched hocus pocus and it just reminds me of you know halloween as this we see it as this very like celebratory time of dressing up of scaring each other of delving into the spooky and even though this work is meant to be you know this entire series is meant to be satirical and there's there's 80 plates in this series and this is the 80th plate i find this really fucking creepy i find these expressions very scary oh yeah yeah yeah. and you know me i love me a horror film i love me a psychological thriller i love me any sort of like supernatural movie but these prints that were made uh, what was it? Yeah, 1799. This shit is fucking scary, man. If I woke up or if I saw any of these masks around me, or I woke up to this mask, I would piss myself. The amount of um, just distortion to these witch goblin faces yep. is, I think that's what places it as the level of, the level one fucked up because as somebody who loves the spooky shit, this is like, bro, this is really fucking spooky. You're taking it to the next level and I'm kind of pissed off. <laughs> not having fun now. I am straight up not having a good time. I just want to say that I look to my right and there is a spider that has just uh, descended from my ceiling and is uh-huh. now making a web right next to my chair. And if that's not a fucking omen, I don't know what <laughs> Oh, God. I think it's staring at me. Um, in any case, I'm just going to press on and say that this Goya piece is my level one fucked up in this. And I love it. Uh, so I actually... <laughs> so FYI for our listeners, I am... Um, Mexicana and so like there's a fair level of superstition 
that comes along with being Mexicana and so much of it is like rooted in this weird mix of indigenous culture and Catholic culture mm-hmm. and um, the idea of like spirits and witches like Bujaria is still a thing there were lots of rumors that one of my great tias was a bruja and that she could take away malojo and like all of this stuff. Um, and then, and then she was my babysitter. So obviously <laughs> I was like, scared shitless constantly and like was on my best behavior always. But anyway, that's, that's another thing. I am, I'm, I just want to say, I, I love that we, so I have a member of my family from a couple generations ago that was apparently a very famous uh, medium in Italy. We'll, we'll continue on about that, but I love that we have a very personal spooky. Yes, definitely, definitely. <laughs> but so, I mean, the other thing about that is there are certain things that very paradoxically are part of like, a type of accepted imagery in indigenous Mexican culture that is not acceptable to Catholics. Mm. Um, And so there's always like that dichotomy there. And my mom, she is um, first generation, but was like super heavily raised by the Catholic church. And so she errs more on the side of like, you know, all of that stuff, like sugar skulls and all of that imagery is not okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and has only recently started to realize why it could be okay. Mm. And one Christmas after my first year at UCLA, I asked her for a copy of Los Caprichos for Christmas. Like I wanted that as my gift because I was so fascinated by it. And so she bought it, not knowing anything about it. And then before she wrapped it up, she took a look and she was so upset by all of the stuff that was in there. And I was like, mom, what are you so upset about? Like, it's just like, they're just prints. And he's Spanish and like, you know, he had some Catholic stuff going on too. And honestly, they were kind of dicks. And so this is sort of like poking fun at them. But she was so upset by it, but she still gave it to me. And I was like, right on mom, right on. I love that, yeah, I love that she still gave it to you. But so I like, I have this weird relationship with Los Caprichos because Part of me does find it silly and funny, like funny, mm-hmm. and part of me finds it like legit scary and like not okay. <laughs> like there are so many images where I'm like, oh God, I don't like this. And I always wonder like how much of that is Goya purposely wanting to create something that is terrifying and how much of it is just Goya not giving a fuck about making things pretty yeah because there is a difference and I remember when I first started to learn about German artists especially like later in like the 1890s 1910s 1920s there was also that focus on not creating things that were quote unquote beautiful to make you really think about why you find things beautiful or ugly in the first place. And I, I always think about like how often it seems that when it comes to certain kinds of imagery, what's not beautiful is always considered at least slightly disturbing, which is, which is not okay. No, and I, I'm so, um, I'm really glad that you brought that up because the reason, part of the reason I chose this print is that I first saw this at LACMA when they had the Guillermo del Toro exhibit. Mm. Um, And they had a lot of Goya, or they had a lot of Los Caprichos in that show. And I think I went a couple of times and I found that show so 
overwhelmingly, I don't know, the title was At Home with Monsters. And I found, like, even though I was so overwhelmed by, like, not only the volume of artwork, but I felt so at home, just because I find a lot of comfort in the sort of, I don't know, I guess, like, quote, unquote, darker side of art. And to have it all in one place was so, it was overwhelming, but it was also incredible to see the chronological interpretations of terror and horror um, and how that informs, like cross-culturally, how that informs a lot of the media that we consume today and how that served as inspiration for Guillermo del Toro. And like, it just, oh, it's just so much. It's so great. You know, he's a perfect example, I think, about that diet that exists. He is himself Mexican. And I remember when I first saw like Pan's Labyrinth, for example, there were so many friends I had who were white that were saying like, man, this is so fucked up. Like everything about this is so fucked up. And I remember thinking like, I don't like horror movies, but I really loved Pan's Labyrinth. And I found myself thinking so often, this is so beautiful. Like, there's something about this that's so inherently beautiful. Even the the eyeballs in his hand, I thought, like, he's, you know, he's got, he, or that creature, I I cannot gender that creature, I'm going to be very fair, I cannot gender that creature, um, has sagging skin, empty eye socket, long, pointy nails, and hand, and, and, eyeballs inside of the palm of their hands yet there's something so incredible because Mm -hmm. I have never seen anything like that and to have that exist in a physical form is just beautiful well and I think that it is to do with the fantastical yeah and what's funny about having it here at Amarad's level one of fucked upness is you can see on these distorted faces that there is like a kind of anguish that we're meant to read there. And it almost makes me think of like how often we're afraid of our own emotions. How much we hold back. Exactly. When they make us feel a little too vulnerable or a little too out of control. So I definitely understand how this would kind of be Level one. Yeah, it's, I mean, there's, there's many levels to this level one. And yes. I think we, I think we tapped into it. And I also think like, we're just scratching the surface. Um, oh. Absolutely. Oh, God, I am so intrigued. What is your level one? Can you so, close it out? I am I'm feeling the pressure now because that was such a good one. So my level one is going to be Edvard Munch's The Scream. I- Yes! <laughs> Sorry, as I scream out. <laughs> I love that. It's a very visceral reaction. So the re- I chose this piece for a lot of different reasons. Um, so for any of you who are not familiar with it, this piece is pretty much patently designed to make you uncomfortable. There's a lot of focus on like man-made structure versus nature. And there is this one figure who seems caught between the two, man and nature, who is standing on a bridge with his hands clasped on either side of his head, caught mid-scream with two figures that seem much more straightforward and openly humanish. Um, in the foreground, and the color palette is not something that I think anybody would necessarily find pleasing. The brush strokes are very aggressive. There's just an overall sense of madness, which, you know, the artist himself has said was kind of the point here. And so when it comes to crying in photographs or paintings or art in general, I wanted this piece because to me, it's almost like what happens in those moments when you're so emotionally upset that 
you know that a cathartic cry is exactly what you need, but you just can't get there because that's just how upset you are. And for me, that is this piece. This piece is a visual representation of that feeling. I, when you were describing that last part, I thought this person looks so hollow. This person looks so hollowed out and, and not even, not even human at that, at that rate. And I, I don't know if you're going to touch upon this and, and if you are, I, I'm sorry to, 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 you know, pre-steal your thunder, but when I see this sky, I have such a different perception of it now because mm -hmm. of all these wildfires. Yes. You know, if I, we did see this sky theoretically, basically in real life, and it has been so fucking terrifying. And it has affected so many different parts of our mood and our physical state. It's just, yeah. Yeah. Well, and so, I mean, I've seen readings of this piece that have gone a few different ways. One of them is that Edvard Munch was kind of really obsessed, I would say, with extremes of human emotion. If you've seen any of his other works, which I'm scrolling down for Emma right now, so many of his works are very... I love his Starry Night so much. Disturbing. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But, it is really disturbing. So there's like a piece called The Vampire, The Sick Child, a painting titled Anxiety and Melancholy. And... Part of that had to do with his focus, um, or some might even say like obsession with insanity and what happens when humans' emotions are pushed to the brink. But I've also read really interesting readings of how this is a reflection of what humanity does to nature and even to human nature. And so in that reading, what's happening with these wildfires <laughs> even more prescient and uh, relative because, you know, this uh, was painted at the start of the Industrial Revolution. Yeah. And there have been lots of argument that some of the other um, kind of figures in the foreground are those, you know, smoke fume churning factories that were pushing us towards progress, but potentially at the expense of nature and well here we are in the middle of a climate change that's causing much of the west coast to be on fire which is in and of itself very sad and i think that and you know another part of this is that there are as i mentioned two human shaped figures closer to the forefront but a little bit back where if this person or this creature that you see at the front of the painting were actually screaming, they would no doubt be able to hear it. But to my mind, at least, it seems as though they've turned their back on him or her, I which think, is yeah. even more cruel and upsetting. Exactly. And I, I've been staring at the left side of the screen for, you know, a number of minutes at this point. I cannot, I mean, maybe it's because I don't have my glasses on, but I cannot tell if they're walking towards or walking away this figure, from this figure. It's, and either way, it's shit. Well, and I think it was purposely left ambiguous. Mm -hmm. But I think the other thing that kind of makes it so uncomfortable is that either way, whether they are forward-facing or back-facing, there's a lack of sense of movement. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like, if I heard a being scream out, there would be some movement. Like, I would be rushing towards them. There's just none of that. Everything else other than this central figure just is so static. And there's such a such an uneasiness in the brushstrokes of the sky and the, the mountains that almost look like an oil spill. Yes. I, I literally can't help but make that association just based on the horrible, seemingly irreversible effects of industrialization and, and what it has done to our, our planet. It's really such a, it's so foreboding that, I don't know, it even has more of a fucked up in this because of it. It's true. 
Edvard Monk, could you see the future? Yes or no? Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, <laughs> like, part of me is like, way to go with the predictions, bud. You nailed it. <laughs> what the fuck did he know that we don't? Jesus Christ. Yeah, but I mean, I think when you talk about anguish, this is it for me. And you know, as we reflect on why we chose the pieces we did, I think it's also really interesting to think about the fact that like, I did spend a fair amount of time thinking about all of the different images that I've come across in my time of just loving art and then studying it, of people crying or crying out, tried really hard to think of paintings or images where the person was crying because of happiness mm. or crying because of anger even. And I just don't see a lot of that. And I don't like that, honestly. Like part of me wishes I could find more examples of all of the other reasons why we cry out. Um, and then especially because I think that I'm thinking back to why you even started to talk about that piece by James Elkins was because we had the question in our first episode about, you know, what painting has ever made you or piece of art has ever made you cry. Right. Um, and those aren't necessarily tears of sadness. They're almost, well, in my case, at least, they're like tears of wonderment. Like, oh my God, there's this beautiful thing. I never thought I'd see it in my life. And now here it is in front of me. It's, it's gratitude. It's, it's joy. It's, it's fascination. Yeah. Exactly. But the moments of capturing tears to photo or to painting, there's so little of that. Right. And I, I, and especially in the, in the paintings or in the, in the works that we chose, I find it really interesting that we also leaned towards that, mm -hmm. uh, the, that theme. And because it's, God, you know, I don't know. It's, it's so difficult. I, I, I think, I don't know, in, in this quarantine, I think we've all made a lot of discoveries about ourselves and the world and, and our context and all of that fun stuff. And I think that it is becoming increasingly more difficult to focus on what brings us joy when there is just so much to fucking cry about. There is so much to fucking cry about, but humans are just so resilient. They are so resilient. And I'm not saying that in a facetious way of like, we're so brave and we're so strong. Like we have dealt with some really fucking horrible shit. You and I, you and I but also the collective we, the royal we. Um, and it is, I think that it's, it's through artwork, it's through expression, it's through this creativity that we're really able to process, to really bring closure to ourselves and, and perhaps to others to really understand that these negative emotions do exist, but we do have a choice. We do have a choice to feel, we have a choice to recover and we cannot do that alone. You know, that is not something that happens in isolation, even though a lot of us are really, really isolated right now. And I think that, you know, in some of the works that we chose, there are single characters and then there are multiple characters. And, and it's, there's a particular, God, I'm getting into this because, you know, I've been get, getting, you know, more into pursuing a graduate degree for art therapy and I've really been thinking a lot about this present moment and how communities are reeling and how they can feel like how how can we begin to feel how can we collectively begin to safely dream and safely and like feel safe to dream and imagine even though we're living in a, like such a fucking dark time it's it's unbelievable like the truest definition of the word shit's fucked up what i can recommend just fucking cry if you need to cry fucking cry man there is such a beautiful catharsis to just expressing and just like let it like our body our bodies are so fair and they will let us know when shit is wrong and sometimes all we have to do is listen that's so true 
sit and listen and bear witness and exist like just be a human we are human beings not human doings we can just be and we can process and we can love and we can do a bunch of fun shit and yeah. it feels like such a uh I, I really went on one there <laughs> i really went I on love one. it it's so appropriate though so appropriate <laughs> oh no emirates i think we should work to turn that frown upside down and move on to drunk girl compliments. Drunk girl compliments! Oh my god. I need to like, oh, excuse me. I like need to know though, like where did you get those rings? Cause like I would die for them. I would like die for you wearing them. Like they're just so great. And like, ugh, the sparkle is like the sparkle in your eye. And I'm just like, I need them. Okay, this is crazy because like I've I've been here for like maybe 15 minutes. And I think I saw you at the bar and I was like, holy shit balls. This chick is fucking beautiful. Like I, I might cry. I I just might cry a little bit because I felt like, like the thing is I saw you from the back and I was like, her hair is just it's it's here and and it's luscious and volumin volumin. Voluminous. It's so love. What? What do you use? What? Be real. Be real with me. You can. You can tell me what you use. What's? What's your hair care? Cause like, I. I will. I just got here. I have to know. I have to know. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! I'm gonna stop the recording. <laughs> This episode of Drunk Art History Bitches is brought to you by Emirate and Chantel. The music was made mostly by the 24-year-old with gray hair and Emirate. Thanks for listening. <laughs>